You are listening to the Philosophy Podcast, presented by LearnOutLoud.com. Here, we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, Nietzsche, and beyond. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts, with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course, The Philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, by Professor Peter Kreeft. To check out this course and a hundred other courses from the Modern Scholar series, please visit www.learnoutloud.com slash modernscholar. In this introductory lecture, Professor Kreeft provides a brief biography of a theological titan. Kreeft views Aquinas' prolific body of work as an important bridge between Greek philosophy and early Western philosophers such as Descartes. Seeing no division between faith and reason, Kreeft describes Aquinas as a quintessential truth-seeker who was willing to take from secular and religious sources alike in the formation of an inclusive philosophy that is still vibrant and alive today. Recorded Books is pleased to present the Modern Scholar series, where great professors teach you. My name is Richard Poe, and I'll be your host. Today we begin a course entitled The Philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. Your professor is Peter Kraft of Boston College. Professor Kraft has authored over 50 books, including Fundamentals of the Faith, The Best Things in Life, and Back to Virtue. He received his bachelor's degree from Calvin College and his Ph.D. from Fordham University. Before teaching at Boston College, he taught at Villanova University for three years. For more information on this course, please visit its webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll have access to links to related sites and a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students. And now we begin The Philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. Lecture 1. Aquinas' Importance and a Short Biography Welcome to 14 Lectures on the Philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. We'll begin with why Aquinas is important, why we should study him, and some little bits of biography. Then we'll go through the order of his masterpiece, the Summa Theologica, and in the last seven lectures we'll classify him in terms of the systematic disciplines of philosophy, metaphysics, anthropology, epistemology, and ethics. Why study Thomas Aquinas? Why am I making these recordings? Why are you listening to them? My professional answer as a philosopher is simply that, by almost anyone's admission, Aquinas was the most important philosopher for the almost 2,000 years between Aristotle and Descartes. But my personal answer is that I believe Aquinas was simply the wisest and most intelligent philosopher in history. And I want to show you why. Everyone knows that Aquinas was a Catholic theologian as well as a philosopher. Some people may also know that he is the Catholic Church's favorite theologian. Back in the 19th century, Pope Leo XIII asked all Catholic schools to put what he called Aquinas' golden wisdom at the very top of their list of teachers. And Pope John Paul II was also a Thomist philosopher, though of a different kind. He combined Thomism with two modern philosophies, personalism and phenomenology, Pope Benedict is also a philosopher, and also a disciple of Thomas, but more especially of Augustine. But then Thomas himself was a disciple of Augustine. But religious authority is not the main reason I think Aquinas is great. 
I was a Thomist in philosophy for years before I became a Catholic in religion, and many of the greatest modern admirers of Aquinas are Protestants or Anglicans or even agnostics. Aquinas didn't think of himself primarily as a philosopher, but as a theologian, an explorer and defender of what he believed to be the true divinely revealed religion. But we won't be focusing on purely religious topics, though Thomas himself would be disappointed if he knew about this. I will treat him here purely as a philosopher, judging him by reason, not by faith. Of course, that includes exploring the things he said about God, which he claims can be known by natural reason as distinct from supernatural faith, that is, by philosophy as distinct from religion. And to get clear on this, the relation between these two realms, reason and faith, that will be the subject of my next lecture. In this lecture, I want to do two things. First, tell you why I think Aquinas is to philosophy what Pixar is to cartoons, and then second, to give you a few vignettes from his life that give you some significant clues about his personality, clues to the subjective side of his greatness as a philosopher. The primary question for us as students of philosophy is not what makes Aquinas a great man, but what makes him a great philosopher. And I have eight answers to that question. First, there is his inclusive habit of mind. Aquinas was a kind of matchmaker, a marriage broker, a synthesizer. His instinct was to combine everything true, good, or beautiful into one great big picture. In modern philosophy, you typically have to be either a rationalist or an empiricist, an idealist or a realist, ideologically right or ideologically left. But to be a Thomist, you have to be a little bit of everything. A Platonist and an Aristotelian and an Augustinian and a lot of other things, too. He was a combiner. He combined faith and reason without confusing them, which was the essential philosophical project of medieval thought, the marriage of Jerusalem and Athens, Jews and Greeks, religion and philosophy, the biblical and the classical traditions, which are the two sources of nearly everything that has lasted in Western civilization. What else is there? When was the last time you talked to a Sumerian or read a book of Hittite philosophy? Aquinas also combined the two ideals of profundity and clarity, which no philosopher even tries to combine anymore. Our philosophers write either profound Germanic obscurities or careful, logically accurate English trivialities. If we ponder God and death and selfhood and the meaning of life, we do it ponderously. And if we use a logical and scientific method, we usually write only about logical and scientific topics, not matters of life and death. Aquinas also combined common sense with technical, abstract, philosophical sophistication. And he combined theory and practice. Some of his most theoretical, most abstract points have life-changing practical applications. He combined in an intuitive wisdom, what many call a third eye, with demanding accurate logic and a keen, detailed observation of nature. And he combined the one and the many, the big picture and many careful distinctions and definitions. That's a lot of combinations. A second reason for Aquinas' greatness is because of his habit of inclusion and synthesis, he stood at the center of the history of philosophy up to his time, tying together ideas from Heraclitus, Parmenides, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, the Stoics, the Church Fathers, 
Augustine, Boethius, Abelard, Anselm, Bonaventura, Maimonides, Avicenna, just about everybody except the sophists, those pre-modern postmodernists. He combined the insights of nearly every philosophical school for the 18 centuries of the history of philosophy before him, and he held them together for one brief Camelot-like moment before they all came unraveled again into separate warring schools of thought for the next seven centuries. His philosophy reminds me of a medieval cathedral, built up over centuries and assembled together in a very rich and complex variety and unity, sort of like the universe, with every part contributing to the unity of the whole. The altar, the stained glass windows, the columns, the flying buttresses, even the gargoyles, everything has a place. Edwin Panofsky wrote a little classic entitled Gothic Architecture and Scholasticism to show that parallel in detail. Medieval philosophy in Aquinas's day, by the way, is often called scholasticism or scholastic philosophy because it arose in the new medieval schools, the universities. Most modern philosophies remind me not of cathedrals, but either of occasional fireworks displays or of dull apartment buildings flat, simple, two-dimensional, predictable, artificial. In fact, Descartes, at the beginning of his Discourse on Method, uses that architectural analogy for philosophies and says he prefers the simple, clean, modern, planned city to the ancient, complex, messy, unpredictable, gradually, organically grown city. But think about that. Which has more unity and more diversity together, like the universe itself? The organic or the artificial? The organs in a body or the rooms in a modern apartment building? So which would be the greater achievement in philosophy? Here's a third thing that makes Aquinas stand out among philosophers, and it also logically flows from his inclusiveness. It's the longevity of his philosophy. Aquinas not only preserved the insights of generations of his predecessors, he also built a philosophy that lasted for generations of his followers and can keep growing creatively. Thomism is still one of the few living philosophies, still a live option 750 years later. And this is partly because it is capable of assimilating new developments like existentialism with Thomists like Gilson and Maritain, or personalism and phenomenology, with Thomists like John Paul II and Norris Clark, and the discoveries of modern science, with Thomists like Bernard Lonergan and Charles de Conic. A fourth unique feature of Aquinas is his Aristotelian habit of care and patience and avoidance of the temptation of exciting oversimplifications and extremes. Aquinas' position on most issues is a golden mean between extremes, which is a large part of what we mean by common sense. Aquinas almost always agrees with common sense, where other philosophers depart from it in one direction or the other. That's the main claim of G.K. Chesterton's little book, St. Thomas Aquinas, The Dumb Ox, which I think is the single best book ever written about Aquinas. Uh, the four greatest Thomist philosophers of the 20th century all said that too. Gilson Maritain, Thomas Owens, and Gerard Phelan. An important part of what we mean by common sense is practical wisdom. And here's a fifth reason Aquinas stands out among philosophers, the close union between the theoretical and the practical sides of his mind. Aquinas was personally very absent-minded, as most geniuses are, 
But that didn't mean he was out of touch or removed from real life, as many geniuses are. He wrote hundreds of wonderfully practical answers to questions ranging from how princes should govern justly to how to cure depression. His answer to that question, by the way, was three things, a hot bath, a large glass of wine, and a good night's sleep. But don't tell that to your psychiatrist. Here's another example of Aquinas' practical wisdom following from his abstract theory. It gives us a wonderful way to simplify our lives. He said, following Aristotle, that there are only three meanings to the term good, only three kinds of things that are really good and thus worthy of our desire and attention. There's the moral good, there's the useful good, and the delightful good. So, if it doesn't make you a more moral person, and if it isn't a practical necessity that you really need and can't do without, and if it doesn't give you any pleasure, forget about it. You see, Aquinas preserved the wisdom of a child. Most of us have lost that. And I think we need to be reminded of that kind of wisdom more than we need to add another item to our busy list of things to remember. A sixth point, a sixth excellence in Aquinas, is the clarity and simplicity and directness of his style and his argumentation and his logic. He thinks in syllogisms, and syllogisms are the simplest and most natural form of reasoning. Anyone can follow them. He comes right to the point. You always know the bottom line. A seventh feature is the profundity of his content. The nature of God and man and life and death and soul and body and mind and will and passions and good and evil and virtue and vice and truth and beauty and time and eternity and being itself, that's pretty profound content to put in simple, straightforward, syllogistic form. And finally, the most important feature of all for any philosopher, he told the truth. Why do we forget that? It's the whole point of philosophy, isn't it? Of course he didn't tell the whole truth, or nothing but the truth. No philosopher ever tells the whole truth. Totality is a divine prerogative. And no philosopher ever tells nothing but the truth, without error. Infallibility is also a divine prerogative. Here are three examples of mistakes I think he made. He argued that we could know that God never created any other universes, and that there were no animals in heaven, and he also justified, quote, a little torture when judiciously used. Well, I think that's three pretty indefensible ideas. But for the most part, he's amazingly free from being the butt of Descartes' famous remark that there is no idea so ridiculous that some philosopher has not actually taught it. Nietzsche said that every system of philosophy is nothing but personal confession. In other words, philosophies are reducible to philosophers. That's one extreme. The other is the common scholarly habit of treating philosophies as if they came out of the sky instead of out of the earth and out of human mouths. Now, to navigate halfway between those two extremes, I'll tell a few little stories about Aquinas' life to sketch out some significant strands in the character of this philosopher. I'll do this not as a diversion from our philosophical understanding of his ideas, but as an aid to it. For philosophy is not merely logical, it's also personal. Philosophy is more like love than like math. It's defined as the love of wisdom, after all. 
Let's get some of the basic, dull, biographical facts out of the way first, then tell a few revealing stories. Thomas was born the son of a powerful Italian count in 1225 and died 49 years later in 1274. He became the pupil of St. Albert the Great, the greatest scientist of his age, and he was the most revered teacher at the University of Paris, the most prestigious university in the medieval world. He was the first to assimilate and use all of the recently discovered works of Aristotle, and by doing this he came into conflict with the ultra-conservative local authorities who preferred the safer Augustine. Actually, Aquinas preferred Augustine too. He quotes Augustine more often than Aristotle. But where Aristotle was right, he used him. He was not afraid of pagan thinkers or new scientific discoveries. He was open to truth wherever it could be found, and he habitually synthesized opposite insights that he found in other thinkers. So he was not a party ideologue. He wasn't into isms. I think he would hate the term Thomism. He wrote somewhere that the object of the study of philosophy is not what philosophers have said, but what is the truth. He taught theology at the new University of Paris, and he authored literally thousands of short treatises and two long summas, or summaries, notably the one called the Summa Theologiae, which is almost always misspelled Summa Theologica. And since philosophy was called the handmaid of theology, this theologian used philosophy, much as a physicist uses mathematics. That formula, philosophy, the handmaid of theology, is no longer popular, but it's still true today that you can't be a good theologian without being a good philosopher. I'll share with you now just 12 little anecdotes from his life that reveal the kind of person he was. The first is his fearlessness. Once Aquinas underwent surgery without shedding a single tear, he seemed not even to notice it. Remember, there were no anesthetics then. But he feared one thing all his life, thunder. What more innocent fear can you imagine? Even his fears were simple and childlike. Here's a second story. At the age of five, he asked his teacher a stunningly simple question. What is God? His teacher was stumped and couldn't answer. So Thomas became a theologian to find out. He loved simple questions with non-simple answers. As we'll see later, Aquinas' answer to that question is that it's literally unanswerable, like a Zen koan. He says, we cannot know what God is, only what God is not. That sounds like agnosticism, and it is agnosticism about God's essence. We can't define that, but not about his existence. He thinks we can know that and even prove it. Here's a third story. Once he reached the age of adulthood, he decided to join the Dominicans, one of the two new monastic orders that had been founded a century before by St. Dominic, the other being Francis of Assisi's Franciscans. Both were orders of wandering beggars, not the socially acceptable, comfortable, and politically powerful regular clergy, or secular clergy, who had parishes. These orders were like the religious hippies of his day. Chesterton says somewhere that it was like an English gentleman running off and marrying a gypsy. This upset his family, who had made different plans for his future. He could have become the abbot of Monte Cassino, the most prestigious monastery in the world, and eventually a leading candidate for pope. 
So his brothers kidnapped him, imprisoned him in a castle room, and sent a prostitute into the room to test his vocation. Thomas grabbed a log from the fireplace and put the fiery brand between himself and the temptation, who lost no time finding the door, on which Thomas then burned a large cross. He knew very clearly what he wanted and what he didn't want. Here's a fourth story. When he was sent to study under Albert, the most famous teacher in the Christian world, Aquinas was shy and silent and placid, and he was also very large and very fat, though not for lack of fasting. His fellow students called him the dumb ox. And when Albert heard this, he told them, You may call him a dumb ox, but I say his bellowing will be heard around the world. A prophecy which came true. But all his writings manifest a kind of ox-like demeanor, slow, calm, careful, patient, contemplative. He never raises his voice, so to speak. He tells you nothing about himself. His whole passion was to be a transparent window to let the light of objective truth shine through. He was a contemplative. Even when he speaks, you can hear the silence surrounding his words. Another story. Teachers traveled a lot in the 13th century, especially Dominicans, so Aquinas was often on the road. But unlike all the other monks, he always walked instead of riding donkeys. He probably weighed about 300 pounds, and he put the donkey's comfort above his own. The Dominicans used donkeys instead of horses because they lived in poverty. Contrary to our modern stereotype of contemplative monks as otherworldly, Thomas was a keen observer of the natural world, especially animals. Another story shows how self-forgetful and absent-minded he was. Like many intellectuals, he probably had a severe case of ADD. An example of this is a banquet at the court of King Louis of France, at which he was an honored guest. Instead of sharing the small talk at the table, he was pondering a philosophical problem in his mind and suddenly found the answer to it. It was a conclusive argument to refute the old heresy of Manichaeism. So he banged his big fist on the table and said, That will settle the Manichaeans. King Louis had enough philosophical sense not to be insulted at the interruption. In fact, he quickly commanded his scribe to bring pen and paper and take down Thomas's latest thought. Another story shows the same priority of philosophy over material things in his mind. He was traveling over a high mountain pass with his companions, and the sun suddenly came out and illuminated a vast landscape below, of rich towns and cities with golden domes. One of his fellow monks remarked, Wouldn't it be grand to be the owner of everything you can see? Thomas replied, Well, I suppose so, but I'd rather be the owner of that missing page in that Aristotle manuscript. For Aquinas, one page of truth trumped thousands of miles of buildings. A pure philosopher. Another story is about how he wrote. He would sit surrounded by four scribes, and he would dictate one sentence to one, the next sentence to the second, and so forth. He spoke four times as fast as they wrote. So by the time he finished the fourth sentence, he'd dictate the fifth one to the first scribe. Aquinas's mind was as fast as his body was slow. If he had had computers, he probably would have written about a 100,000 pages. As it is, in 25 years, he wrote 50 folio volumes. That's about 50,000 pages, the equivalent of 500 short modern books, and all with a quill pen. Also, he hardly ever revised anything. First drafts came out perfect. 
Remember that if you browse through the Summa Theologiae, which is a masterpiece of condensation written, he said, for beginners. It's about 4,000 pages long. To say what he said in one page would take a typical modern theologian about 20. Thomas had an incredibly clear photographic memory and mind, like the chess master who plays 20 games simultaneously in his mind, blindfolded. There are such people. I played one once. I lost very quickly. Another story. Shortly before he died, he stopped writing the Summa. It's unfinished. Asked why he stopped, he replied, Compared to what I have seen, everything I have ever written looks to me like straw. Imagine that. The Summa, by far the greatest work of theology ever written, and its author refused to finish it because he called it straw. Medievals used straw to contain dung. So this word of Thomas's is like the word St. Paul used for all his worldly achievements in Philippians 3 when he compared them to knowing Christ. I count them but dung. The Greek word is skubala. Yes, it's the S word. Now, why did Aquinas call the greatest theological work in history straw? What had he seen? In a word, God. He had a mystical experience, a foretaste of heaven, and it so radically transcended words that he just couldn't go back to them. I think no one ever sculpted words as clearly and accurately as Aquinas, but they were not his God. I think he would have smiled knowingly to hear this famous Zen Buddhist wisdom about words. A finger is useful for pointing at the moon, but woe to the fool who mistakes the finger for the moon. And I think he would have had a good laugh at the story of the theologian who died and was given the choice between going to heaven or going to a lecture on heaven, and of course he chose the lecture. Another little vignette. As a teacher at the University of Paris, he loved the public debates called disputed questions, in which a teacher publicly fielded any and all objections from other faculty and students. These were held in public, usually outdoors, for crowds, and most teachers avoided the rough-and-tumble of unpredictable questions with their risk of embarrassment. But Thomas loved it. I think he loved debate and dialogue and dialectic more than anyone else who ever lived, except maybe Socrates. A summa article is really a short, systematic summary of a debate. Another story. When he knew he was terminally ill, he made a general confession of all the sins of his life. His friend and confessor, Brother Reginald, came out of the confessional booth weeping. The sins of a child of five. The sins of a child of five. And I don't think that could have been a cover-up. Aquinas was constitutionally incapable of dishonesty or even exaggeration. No word better fits him than innocent. Nothing is more inappropriate in reading him than the so-called hermeneutic of suspicion. There are no hidden dark corners. What you see is what you get. Here is the last and most telling story of all, because it tells you his absolute center. Brother Reginald, his confessor, swore that in the middle of the night he saw Thomas alone, lying flat on his stomach on the floor of the chapel, conversing with Christ. A voice came from the crucifix over the altar. It asked Thomas the greatest question in the world, and Thomas gave the greatest answer. It said, Thomas, my son, you have written well of me. What will you have as your reward? And Thomas answered with characteristic brevity, Only yourself, Lord. I think those are the three most eloquent words Aquinas ever wrote. 
He wrote about ten million words. Nobody ever put the meaning of life in fewer words than that. They were the most perfect summary of his theology that he ever spoke. And I think even an atheist can admire the perfect style of that answer. I've talked a lot in this lecture about Aquinas as a person, his personality, and about his faith and his holiness. These lectures are about his philosophy. What's the connection between his faith and his reason? In my next lecture, I'll look at what he said about that, about the relation between faith and reason, philosophy and theology. He was primarily a theologian, and his primary work is the Summa Theologiae, not the Summa Philosophiae, but will follow the order of that work with philosophical questions in mind. Aquinas was a philosopher in service of theology. His theology, in turn, was based on the Bible, not on philosophy. He quotes scripture tens of thousands of times from memory. Memorizing the entire Bible was not at all that unusual for a medieval monk or rabbi. When books were few, memories were many. All three of these things, philosophy and theology and scripture, were for him, in turn, only means to the single most important thing in his life, which was being a saint personal transformation, ultimately deification, participating in the very life of God. That, for him, was the ultimate end of human life. So what we're doing here is extracting his philosophy out of a far richer and more layered personal context. The Summa Theologiae is not a theoretical treatise in the abstract. It's not like a book of philosophy written by some Enlightenment philosopher. Its primary aim is not scholarship, or even simply speculative wisdom, but the improvement of the souls of its readers by theological education. I think that fact does not compromise the logical and philosophical integrity of his arguments. Why would a higher motive corrupt the deed? If I feed your body only because I want your money, that's corrupting, and I'd probably feed you cheap food. But if I feed your body because I love your soul, I'd give you the very best food that I could. The builders of the medieval cathedrals didn't compromise their architecture just because they had higher religious motives, just the opposite. They performed architectural miracles. So we'll look at some of the logical, philosophical miracles that Aquinas performed in the service of his faith when we continue. This ends Lecture 1.